of 1 Samuel is where we come to our evening study together. And what we're going to look at, even though it's marked in your bulletin as the entire first chapter, I'm going to actually end our study tonight in verse 20 for reasons I trust that we'll see soon enough. And so uh, let me read those 20 verses for us and then ask the Lord to be with us in our study of this wonderful story before us and then we'll begin together. So listen once again as God in his kindness and his power speaks to us through his trustworthy word once again. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah's wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the Lord's temple. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant... And remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put wine away from you. And she answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the women went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us uh, through your perfect word, that it is a word that you have breathed out for our own training and righteousness, and we pray this night that you would rebuke us where we need your rebuke, that you would correct us where we need your correction, that you would equip us and comfort us 
that we might look to your Son, Jesus Christ, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know that many of you know that our oldest son, Hudson Mark, is named after a 19th century missionary, an Englishman named Hudson Taylor, who took the gospel to China. And as the story of his voyage eastward goes, there was an occasion when the ship was sailing when the wind had died down for many days in a row, and the ship just began to drift and drift and drift. No wind could be found, and soon enough, the captain noticed that they were drifting towards land. And soon enough, the captain realized that they were drifting towards one of these islands that were full of the time of cannibals. And so the captain began to do everything he could to get the ship off of its direction toward this island. They kept drifting and drifting. Ever closer, they soon realized, all the people on the ship, that fires were being lit on this island as the people there were readying to greet the unexpected guests soon to arrive. And the captain came to Hudson Taylor and said, we've tried everything. We're going to run into this island. And as he records in his journal, Hudson Taylor said, there's one thing you haven't tried yet. And the captain asked, well, what's that? He said, there are four of us on the ship who are Christians. He said, let us retire to our cabins and agree in the Lord to send an immediate breeze. And so they did. They prayed. And soon enough, wind just suddenly whipped up and put them quite quickly back on the course that they had so long desired. And it's in times of need, isn't it, that the best thing, and certainly even the most basic thing, that we can do is ask of the Lord to do that which only the Lord can do. And so what I want us to see from our first study in 1 Samuel tonight is this theme of asking God. Uh, this is a book, if you, if you know it in the Old Testament's sweep of redemptive history, that's altogether pivotal as it moves Israel from a, a time in which they were ruled by judges to finally this nation becomes a kingdom as a king now rules over the land. And of course, if you know the story well enough, that first king that Israel chooses proves to be not the king that they need, and it leads us to that second king, David, from whom Jesus Christ, the king of kings, is going to come. But the reason why I want us to think tonight about this theme of asking God is for two particular things we see at the end of 1 Samuel. So if you notice again, verse 20, oh, when this baby Samuel is born, he is named as such according to the passage, because as the ESV records, I have asked him, Hannah says, asked for him from the Lord. His name, Samuel, it sounds something like asked for. Uh, but if you glance down to the final two verses in 1 Samuel 1, uh, the original language actually four times uses the language of asking. And because it would be rather repetitive and sound kind of clunky in English, the translations don't bring it out. But if you just kind of glance at verse 27 and 28 of chapter 1, if we wanted to translate it somewhat literally, it would sound more like Hannah saying, the Lord has granted me the asking that I asked of him. So now I give the response to my asking to the Lord, and for his whole life he shall be given as a response to my asking of the Lord. So here's, here's a story about a woman asking of God. And what I trust we can see by the end is what that asking ultimately leads to. So there are a few things that I want you to see about asking God. And the first thing that we're going to notice in our first section is ask 
because you're needy. You see, the book begins with this pregnant phrase, there was a certain man. There's only one other time in all the Bible, as far as I can tell, that that phrase, there was a certain man, is found anywhere in Holy Scripture. And it shows up in Judges 13 with the story of Samson's birth, that family into which he was born. So that simple phrase, there there was a certain man, signals for us that this book, of course, begins in the days of the Judges. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the immediately preceding book, where we have Ruth in the English Bible, the Hebrew Bible has the book of, of Judges. And kids, you may have heard the phrase before of the good old days. If you come to the book of Judges, you need to recognize that in the Bible's course of Revelation, the book of Judges is the bad old days. That there was no king in Israel. That everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But they were looking for a king, as this book, 1 Samuel, is going to make quite clear. And throughout the Bible, long genealogies are used to introduce kings. So we might think, given what was going on in the land of Israel at this time, that this book opens with a genealogy in order to introduce us to the king soon to come to Israel. But if you glance through what we're told about this man, Elkanah, you glance through where he comes from, the people from which he comes also, what you would realize, if you know anything about these people, if you know anything about these places, is that he's a nobody from nowhere, which is a big theme in 1 Samuel, that God loves to use unexpected people from unexpected places to accomplish his expected purposes. And the story here really isn't about Elkanah, is it? It's before us tonight, focusing on this first wife of Elkanah. You'll notice verse 2, he had two wives. So perhaps he was rather wealthy in order to supply for two families. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name was the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So it's a story here of barrenness that leads to bitterness, And ultimately brings blessedness. You need to understand that ancient Old Testament context. To to have an empty womb. to To be barren. Was more than just a personal tragedy. Because you might remember. All the way back in the book of Genesis. The Lord had said. Someone was going to come. From the seed of the woman. Who would crush the serpent's head. Therefore in a way that we can't possibly comprehend. Because the serpent crusher has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. At that time, in the ancient context of Israel, every time a baby was born, there was a wonder, is this the one? Not just that, there was a covenant promise made to Abraham and all his offspring that he would have seed as numerous as the sand is on the seashore. So so an empty womb wasn't just a personal tragedy. And some of you know what that feels like. It was also a theological oddity at the time in Israel. But you'll notice it's a result of God's sovereignty because twice it's repeated, isn't it, at the end of verse 5 and 6, who's ultimately responsible for all the emptiness and the barrenness. As it says both times, the Lord had closed her womb. Yahweh has brought the sorrow and the suffering. And students, you, you need to know that there are few truths, doctrinal realities in Scripture that so change your life as a deepening awareness and affection for a God who is sovereign over all things, all of the good and the bad, all of the troubles and the triumphs, 
all of the highs and the lows, that when children don't come forth, there might be natural explanations that doctors could give you, but ultimately it's because the Lord closes a womb. So there's this struggle in Hannah's life, emptiness in her own body, but there's also animosity and hatred in her own home, because you'll see what we're told in verse 6 and 7, she has this kind of arch rival in the house, this second wife of Elkanah, who used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, verse 6 says, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke Hannah, as though she wept and, and would not eat. <clears throat> Hannah's name means something like favored. And you can imagine that this other wife can easily mock her. So you're the favored one, huh? Why is it that you're so fruitless and I'm so fruitful? Every time one of Penina's kids has a birthday, Hannah, why don't you come over here and celebrate my children's birthday? Oh, you don't have any children, do you? That's pretty sad, isn't it? And this goes on. The text piles it up actually year after year after year. And it's not just the mockery that comes. It's year after year after year. The text is telling us they're going to worship at Shiloh. And the Lord isn't answering her prayer. Understand that you can, of course, find rivals in the world, can't you, that don't believe in the Lord's promises and purposes. They can mock your devotion to God. What's all your devotion to God doing? It seems not to bring any sort of fruit or fulfillment. It just brings struggle and sorrow, an unbelieving world would say. But how often it is that that struggle... That, that sorrow is precisely where God means to bring about his sovereign purposes. Not just in his people's life, but for his own kingdom and its expansion. So you notice what we're told in the following verses. They go up to Shiloh. And it's there that Hannah's found weeping. She goes to pray before the Lord in verse 10. And it says that she wept bitterly. So what I'm saying here is ask because you're needy. So just glance through the next few verses just to see the emotional turmoil, the neediness, we could say. Now that belongs to Hannah in this moment because you see verse 10, she was deeply distressed. It continues, she prayed and wept bitterly. Verse 11, she speaks about her affliction. Verse 15, she says, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. Verse 16, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation, she says. She's utterly needy, all she has before the Lord is praying to God, asking of God. And I hope you know that there's no such thing as fervent, faithful prayer in a true believer's life apart from neediness. That without need, why would you pray? One of the most subtle schemes of Satan in our context and contemporary moment, no doubt here in North Texas, is a temptation to self-sufficiency. How many of us can go through an ordinary week and we really don't need that much? Materially speaking, perhaps. Physically speaking, even. Perhaps even relationally speaking. Yet God's people are supposed to be praying people. Perhaps even sometimes the struggles and the sorrows are nothing more than the Lord's sovereign kindness to place you into his school of prayer, to give you neediness so you know what it means to pray to him, to ask because you're needy. Secondly, we see ask because you're trusting. Because she enters into the temple there 
at Shiloh and look at verse 11, what her prayer is, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him, give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We'll come back, Lord willing, to some of that vow next week. But I'm interested in two parts of that prayer. The first of which is that phrase, on the affliction. You have looked on the affliction of your servant. It's the same language that's used all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 where Yahweh says he has looked on the affliction of his servant Israel in the midst of their bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so it seems as though what what Hannah is saying here is, Lord, you have looked upon your people before, heard their cry and delivered them. Will you not look upon this person, hear my cry, and deliver me? Just as without an understanding of our own neediness before the Lord, we'll never grow in asking of God, nor will we grow in asking of God if we don't understand what he's done for his people in centuries past and how he's been faithful to his promises over and over, that very much what Hannah is saying, Lord, you've done it before. Lord, do it again. I remember, wonder when the last time was you said something like that. Lord, I've seen you do this before. I read in your word that you've done this before. Lord, do it again. But you'll notice the faith is found even in the pronouns, isn't it? As she says, look upon your servant. She understands that she belongs to the Lord. And it's our identity as children of God that we can come to a Father in heaven and cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that we belong to Him. That just as every parent in the room knows, we love to hear our children make requests of us. To ask us for things that we can give them. So too does our Father in heaven call us as His beloved children to come to Him. You ask because you're needy. Ask because you're trusting. Thirdly, Ask because he's listening. You see what happens in verse 14. Eli says to Hannah, as he's sitting there in the doorpost, a doorway into the temple place, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. I recently came across this article in an old Texas magazine. It was published in, that was about 30 years ago in in the mid-90s. And it was this long collection of Texas sayings and cliches. And there was one section about Texas sayings and cliches on people who are not so smart. And one of the ones that stuck with me was, I can't, I'm sorry, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. And what you have here, Eli, is not understanding what's plainly before his eyes. Because you see, the immediate verse preceding verse 14 tells us that Hannah was praying in her heart. Which if you know anything about Old Testament piety, that was unusual. You almost always prayed audibly. But it's a scene, or perhaps even we should say a perspective into how far gone Israel was into their own iniquity. That the high priest in the land can't notice fervent, faithful devotion and prayer when it's right before his very eyes. Someone praying in such a way, must be drunk, is what he concludes. And I'm sure we can recognize how we live in a time and and place where faithful displays, fervent displays of devotion to the Lord, are so likewise irregular and abnormal 
that people think something else must be happening, when in reality it might just be the most biblical thing happening. A woman in her need praying and asking the Lord to do that which only she can do. And you'll see in verse 15, she says, I'm of course a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I wonder when was the last time you could sincerely say, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord and my place of spiritual emptiness. I'm going to empty myself unto the Lord in prayer. And you'll see Eli realizes at last what's actually going on there. He gives a benediction, verse 17, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. You know, I spent a few weeks, a few months away, wasn't it, uh, this summer on sabbatical and a huge part of the first eight weeks or so was uh, working on this project related to revival. I don't know what you think about revival. I hope you would agree with me that revival is a good thing, uh, that it's a biblical thing. And I remember in June and July, uh, reading all of these accounts of uh, what I would say would be Biblical revivals throughout church history, not just church history, but scripture itself. And one of the normal, common denominator spiritual realities that always go on in times of of genuine revival is that God's people are almost ignited in fervent and faithful prayer. And it's here as this book continues, we're going to see something, a revival fall in the nation of Israel. And it all begins with a faithful woman's fervent prayer. And I want to show, I want to show you here at the end just two more things about what comes to us from asking God. Because yes, we ask because we're needy. We ask because we're trusting. We, we ask because he's listening. When we ask God, we find peace. That's the first thing you want to see as we close. For verse 17, again, Eli said, go in peace. Look at the end of verse 18. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, I hope you know what that feels like. That, that sweep of the Lord's contentment falling over you and even pouring over you in, in the moment of prayer. It sounds a lot like Paul's counsel to the Philippians, doesn't it? Don't be anxious about anything, but present your request to the Lord. By everything, pray. And the peace of God will indeed surround you in Christ Jesus. Maybe you sit in here this night anxious. Maybe you sit in here this night sorrowful, full of struggle. Your, your countenance is sad. Maybe the best thing you can do in Jesus Christ is go and ask the Lord to be faithful to you. That you might leave that prayer closet as it were. Arising just like Hannah did so many centuries ago with a face that was no longer downcast. A soul flooded with the peace of God. So ask and you find peace. Secondly, finally, ask and the Lord brings about his purposes. You'll see again verse 20 tells us at the end. The Lord answered her prayer. She conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. And it's interesting the way this book works out. You have these nobodies from nowhere begin to take places of prominence in God's kingdom. And if you glance back to verse 1, what we're told at the end about the nowheres in Elkanah's life is that he was an 
Ephrathite. It's a rather significant place, actually, in the fullness of time and revelation. Because you might know that soon we're going to discover a man named David comes from a father named Jesse, who was an Ephrathite. And ultimately, what comes from Ephrathra, that's also called Bethlehem, but Jesus Christ, the son of David, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's not too much to say, and I want you to feel the weight of this even tonight, it's not too much to say that it did hang on the prayer of a faithful, fervent woman named Hannah. That so often, not only do our, do our asking of God in prayer, does our asking of God in prayer bring us peace, but those very requests that we make to God are in fact what he has decreed to use to bring about his purposes. Use to bring about the promises that he will be faithful to in our life. Ask, and you will find peace in Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to give you Christ Jesus himself. And you'll find a Lord that delights to give his people nothing more with great overflowing grace and limitless kindness than the fullness of life found in Jesus Christ, the son of David, who came from the land of Ephrathah. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for more grace that we would know what it means to be a people of prayer and dependence upon you, that you would cast our knees before you and our souls down low, that we might be lifted up in your kindness and compassion. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have not asked much of you, not just this week, not even just this last month. Perhaps even the Spirit convicts us this night, Father, the ways in which this entire year has passed with small askings of your kindness and your covenant grace. Uh, Fill us, we pray, with more power in the Spirit. Sustain us, we pray, with more promises in our heart. That prayer might arise within our souls, that we would grow in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.